Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Comedy, drama, experimentation, negotiation, bells, a spoon, several hundred scouts, gin, a failing government, a prince, Serrano de Bergerac. Generally speaking, the stars are aligning for the birth of the Beeb. With just a fortnight to go, it's now down to the Broadcasting Committee to dot the I's and cross their fingers. And then the BBC will be off and running. Charter course for Danny Dyer's The Wall. We'll just take 98 years to get there. This time, we will cover the last fortnight of pre-BBC broadcasting. But no twiddling of thumbs here. No, we've got dangling microphones for the Lord Mayor's show. We've got the first BBC licences and the first allegations of political bias in British broadcasting. Believe it or not, predating the BBC by 13 days. We're not biased here, though, no siree. And we are free to air opinions if we want to, because we are nothing to do with the BBC. Yet, although we are open to offers, Tim Davey, call me. We've arrived at November 1922. It's the eve of the British Broadcasting Company, here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. So welcome one, welcome all. Well, hopefully it's not just one, but if it is, hello to you. We are nearly there, folks. We are telling the story of British broadcasting the slow way, the right way, which now means we are just one episode away from the BBC's launch in November 1922. A lot happened in that pre-BBC fortnight. Now, I personally think this episode is particularly fascinating. I know that I would say that, but in a lot of histories of the BBC... This fortnight is glossed over, understandably. You know, just get on with it. Launch the BBC already. But on this episode, we're going to see a few pitfalls and limitations of broadcasting. And it all, generally speaking, comes back somehow to its relationship with the government and the press. So we're going to need some help. The return of the newspaper detective, Andrew Barker. A few episodes ago, he joined us with some cuttings from the archive. And he's back because in November 1922, there were moans in the press about political bias. Can you imagine? At least they've all been solved. Firstly, here's something that links back to last episode. We had that 1890 recording that we played you of trumpeter Lanfried. One of the surviving trumpeters of Charles Well, our friends at Centuries of Sound got in touch. Centuries of Sound is a fantastic project to catalogue sound montages from each year, from the mid-1800s to now. One heck of a task. With regard to last episode's bugle clip, centuriesofsound.com told us the majority of notable recordings, they say, between 1888 and 1891 or so, come from London. Lots of famous voices, it turns out, and they're mainly recorded at Edison House. It turns out there was a fundraising initiative at the time to support Crimean war veterans, and that included interviews and the like with trumpeter Lanfried, and also, in fact, Florence Nightingale. When I am no standard, even if you didn't catch that, she said, when I am no longer even a memory. Just just a name. I hope my voice may perpetuate. I hope my voice may perpetuate the great work of my life. The great work of my life. Drops mic. 
Not quite so good a quality, but she's famous, so she can get away with it. So how does this all tie in with next episode's launch special? Well, Centuries of Sound also tell us there is an 1890 recording of the chimes of Big Ben. And wouldn't that fit rather well, they said, if, for example, we were to recreate the very first BBC News Bulletin on the next episode. That is, of course, the very first BBC broadcast, and it began with the Westminster Chimes. So firstly, let's hear Big Ben's Westminster Chimes from 1890. Big Ben, Westminster, London, striking half past 10, July the 16th, 1890. Was made by Miss Ferguson and Graham Hope. 130 years ago. Delightfully wobbly, isn't it? And at least they were being played back then. Nowadays it's all close for repair, isn't it? So yes, yeah, Centuries of Sound, uh, along with this week's guest Andrew Barker, in fact, they've cajoled and encouraged me to yet yeah, have a go at recreating the very first BBC broadcast. It was a news bulletin read by Arthur Burroughs, the first voice of the Beeb, and I don't think that anyone else has recreated it that I can find anyway. We don't know the bulletin word for word, but we know enough about it to give it our best shot, and if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be us. So then, do we use this 1890 recording of Big Ben's chimes? It does seem a rather neat idea, doesn't it, to use that recording, even though these chimes from 1890, it's 32 years before BBC, it's about as accurate as using a 1954 recording of Big Ben. But, you know, there's a sense of history, and I like that. But, it's a big but, the BBC did not broadcast Big Ben's chimes until 1924. The Westminster chimes on the very first broadcasts, it was Arthur Burroughs or musical director Stanton Jeffries banging their tubular bells to do the Westminster chimes. They'd hired those bells for the occasion because they couldn't afford to buy them. So much as I would love to use that beautifully wobbly 1890 Big Ben recording of the chimes, I don't think we can. We're going to have to buy some tubular bells or even more accurately, hire them. Wouldn't it be nice if you could listen to the next episode, the BBC launch episode, on exactly the 98th anniversary of the launch itself. So that's my plan. We're going to see if I can work like a dog night and day and get the next episode out to your ears actually on November the 14th. If you would like to show your appreciation for such round-the-clock work, we have a Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash paulcarenza. And for the price of a couple of cups of coffee a month, you can help us keep going, help fund the books of research, the web hosting, all that jazz. There's no profit here, but if you want to help lessen the loss, thank you to those who do. If you can't or won't, or if you just want this for free, I get it. So instead, if you would share what we do on your social medias or give us a rate and review if you haven't already, that's also incredibly helpful. And so to this week's mission, to tell the story of the last pre-BBC fortnight. Everything is nearly set in motion. If we've learnt anything over this series, it's that the BBC did not just start. It didn't just begin transmitting into a void of radio silence. No, 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 no. There were experiments, innovations, amateur broadcasts. But when do they become professional broadcasts? Well, last episode, we closed on a test transmission that was a public broadcast of sorts. October the 31st's big 2ZY music concert. But that same night, Halloween 1922, someone in London claims to have heard something 
untoward. After all the assurances that wireless broadcasting would not be tinged with political bias, amateur listeners in were amazed last night to receive radio advice on how to vote in the municipal elections. Could political bias have come to broadcasting before there even was a BBC? For this, we need our newspaper detective who's been delving into the newspaper archive of the day, Andrew Barker. There was a, an article in the Daily Herald, which was a left-leaning newspaper, a left-leaning national newspaper, on the 1st of November 1922. And the headline is... Radio advice on voting. Flagrant abuse of wireless. Last night's message, poor excuse of test to a protest. And it appears that a listener to 2LO heard a broadcast that was um, just before six o'clock. He heard the voice. Hello, Chelmsford, Marconi House, 2LO, closing down, closing down. But then, according to this listener, the wireless phone commenced to talk at 5.20. It advised electors of London to vote for the municipal reform candidates and defeat popularism. Which I presume means popularism. The Municipal Reform Party was actually a, effectively an offshoot of the Conservative Party, which just organised in London. So this listener, who is probably fairly left-wing in that he reads the Daily Herald, is very concerned that they are advising listeners to, to vote for this, uh, this party. The Daily Herald contacts Marconi House and they say, we didn't make any transmissions at this time and we wouldn't use it for political purposes. But what happens then is that the reporter in the, on the Daily Herald, in speaking with the uh, representative, at Marconi House ascertains that yes there was actually a, a test transmission being made at that at that point and the announcer may actually say anything at all even the feathers in a lady's hat and I think what's happening here is, is that they were broadcasting actually effectively to Chelmsford mm. who may have been testing radios in the in the Marconi works but if it were a test, would amateurs owning receiving sets be able to hear what was said? Oh yes, replied the official. No doubt many amateurs are listening in for anything that may come along, and they would hear it. OK, so what do we learn from this then? Is, is this then saying what we, they needed the regulation to come in to stop these apparently private tests being made public? Or is it this was an accident? I think it was just an announcer randomly reading things from a, from a newspaper just mm. for Chelmsford to listen to and to provide so it wasn't actually an, an official broadcast to the public but obviously the public who heard it weren't actually understanding the difference between a test transmission and and effectively an announced public transmission it is clearly laid down in the post office regulations concerning the use of wireless telephones that broadcasting shall not be used for the furtherance of any political party anything necessary will be done to prevent such use of the broadcasting system and in the clarification in the next day the daily herald publishes again the statement that yes, radio does have to be impartial. If there should be any breach of the regulations in the future, steps will be taken at once to prevent a repetition. You can see how far radio has come since the very first episodes when we were talking about Mr Ditcham reading out the railway timetables and then being surprised that people were actually listening to this and actually tuning in especially for it. It's seemingly to start with, they thought these test transmissions were just for Marconi employees and just for the person at the other end to hear it. But by this point, the nation expects and suddenly people are going well, no forget this narrow casting you are now broadcasting and sometimes the broadcasters had to be reminded of that fact i suppose yes the newspapers initially at the start of these broadcasts in 1922 are often referring to these broadcasts as wireless telephony 
And to me, that indicates wireless telephony. They are broadcasting really to an individual or a group of individuals. And in fact, that's what 2LO is largely doing. In those later months of 1922, they're actually largely broadcasting to amateur radio societies or to other organizations in order to promote the radio. They don't appear at that moment to be explicitly broadcasting to individual listeners as such. They're, they're putting on these special transmissions. So th there wasn't really regular, regular programming from 2LO, whilst Manchester was providing regular transmission. And the Manchester transmissions at that time were really aimed at amateurs. And so I think that the nature of the programs that were being put out were quite different in tone of the, um, from the, of the Manchester transmissions from the 2LO transmissions. So that in effect, Manchester is broadcasting whilst 2LO is performing wireless telephony. The irony is actually that I was a couple of minutes late for our chat here because I had a very quick last minute phone interview with LBC. Nick Ferrari show wanted me to contribute about the perceived left-wing bias of the BBC. And, you know, here we are talking about potential political bias a hundred years ago and obviously these are still discussions that are literally happening today i had no idea that these allegations of political bias on the radio came in so early as in even before there was a bbc now there is of course a general election on the way november the 15th 1922 surely radio has the power to influence that what if it's just a clumsy engineer who wasn't quite aware anyone was listening these are the unforeseen questions buzzing around British broadcasting in the fortnight before the BBC launches. Now, I record this, in fact, exactly 98 years to the day. And only this week, BBC News staff were told that under the new DG, Tim Davey, they are not to publicly state opinions on social media, virtue signal, or attend protests or pride marches or, well, 98 years on, rightly or wrongly, the broadcasters are still having their opinions kept in check. The general opinion in wireless circles is that when broadcasting becomes general, politics will be taboo. From the Gloucester Citizen, 3rd of November 1922. I think this should be made generally known, or the two and a half million licenses now distributed for wireless amateurs in all the post offices will not find such a ready sale as otherwise they might do. Ah yes, the licenses. Now that's a lot of them. And it's November 1st, as the Daily Herald published that first piece you heard, that's when the broadcasting licence becomes available in post offices. They cost 10 shillings, it's about £25 in today's money. Half of that goes to the BBC, the other half the General Post Office. On the back of your newly purchased licence, you would find printed a rather archaic condition that every licensed listener was actually signing up to. The licensee shall not divulge any message received by means of the station, in other words, the radio set, other than time signals, musical performances and messages transmitted for general reception. So, no telling people what you hear. Like political talk, for example, unless it's transmitted for general reception. And of course, you will need an official radio set with a mark on it reading BBC type approved by Postmaster General. Or perhaps you might make your own. The BBC, which is of course at this point a consortium of wireless manufacturers, they get a royalty on each of these receivers and that money is set aside to pay for the programmes and build the new stations. Remember that eight new stations have been promised under the terms of the broadcast licence. At this point, there's only London and Manchester. This from the Manchester Guardian on November the 2nd, 1922. 
The Metropolitan Vickers Company, from their research laboratories at Trafford Park, will begin next week a regular series of broadcasting experiments. The company have installed a high-power radio transmitting plant and have decided to broadcast a musical programme every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 8pm, beginning next week. The experimental programmes so far sent out from Trafford Park have been successfully picked up in London. The experience gained by these experiments should, it is felt, be of some technical importance. So that's Manchester up and running, London we know about, Birmingham is on its way, and Rittle in Essex, well, they are just carrying on under Peter Eckersley, but never destined to become BBC proper. So let's hear from Peter Eckersley then, the Rittle Witterer, soon to be Chief Engineer of the BBC, with a few of the hiccups that this new licence brought with it. Well, it was a fine idea, but it didn't work, because, of course, that time there was sufficient information knocking about to enable any enthusiast to use his uh, washing line with a damp piece of string as an aerial and get a knife pushing on a piece of coal as a detector and a pair of borrowed headphones and get the program. In other words, it was all too easy for the home constructor to make up a lash-up and hear the programs. And uh, the type was not approved by the Postmaster General. When Peter Eckersley ultimately joins the BBC as chief engineer in 1923, he takes it on himself to visit town halls, to preach and encourage listeners about paying their licences. Yes, it was rather an effort to persuade people to buy licences. And I can remember a species of evangelicism on my part. I used to go down to these various places in the town halls and give talks to these um, masses of listeners who came there. And there came a period in my talk when I said... Of course, it was decided that the revenue of the BBC should be derived from people who paid their 10 shilling licences. Is that news to you? Uh, then I used to put my hand here and say, is it right that others should pay for your... Is it British? Is it fair? Besides which, we've got a detector van. <laughs> One time down at Plymouth, we used to have a wonderful time. I, I remember as we drove up to the station, we drove past the post office, and there was a queue waiting to pay their licences. I never have I felt prouder in my life. <laughs> Let's race through some other events then in early November. November 3rd, an impressive demonstration of radio is given by Sir William Noble in London, introducing the Lord Mayor of Bristol, in Bristol, transmitted by a long connection of wired wireless. Fancy. November the 4th, Howard Carter finds the entrance to Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings. We had penetrated two chambers, but when we came to a golden shrine with doors closed and sealed, we realised that we were in the presence of the dead king. Later that month, Carter becomes the first inside Tut's tomb for over 3,000 years. There are rooms at the BBC like that today. And back in broadcasting, 2LO express uncertainty about their neighbouring transmitter. You may recall there are actually two transmitters in London at this point. Down the road from the famous 2LO on the Strand, there's a part American upstart 2WP from Marconi rival Western Electric. But they are all BBC now, so they need to get along. No longer rivals as such. So November the 5th, 2LO engineer Mr R.H. White, in fact he will be offered the BBC chief engineer job ahead of Peter Eckersley, but 
Mr. White will turn it down. He arranges for 2LO and 2WP to broadcast at the same time, 5 until 6pm on 360 metres and 425 metres. So Mr. White took it on to try them both deliberately at the same time to see if two nearby transmitters would cause a big problem. And the result... 2WP, get packing, you're off to Birmingham. There's only room for one transmitter in London, thank you, and that is 2LO. Western Electric's 2WP transmitter is sent to Birmingham, where it's given a new call sign and becomes known as 5IT, one of the first BBC stations alongside London and Manchester. But there is also radio at this point from other places too. November 6th, regular wireless concerts begin in Paris under a French company called Radio La Concerts, beating the BBC by eight days. Trebien. And Holland. This is promoted by non-BBC, even anti-BBC sources. Daily Mail Wireless Concerts. From the Worthing Gazette, 8th of November 1922. These concerts will be broadcast every Thursday and Sunday evening, one and a half kilowatts wavelength, 1,000 metres. The Daily Mail was obviously as a sponsor of the 1920 Dame Nellie Melba concert wanted to own their own radio station but they were told you can't have it you can't mix being printed press and the broadcasters but they are still sponsoring wireless concerts they're still well behind it all yes they are still sponsoring concerts and I believe those concerts were from abroad but from that point onwards the Daily Mail has always been very antagonistic towards the BBC they've always held the grudge that the Mm. BBC lost them of their chance of the opportunity to actually have their own radio station and what's interesting now is that we do have a radio station that is um, that is effectively a part of a newspaper and that's times radio it's just taken a century um, to get there hasn't it but in the early days of american broadcasting the new york times had its own radio station so there was a there was a precedent for this so perhaps this is why the daily mail at this point were backing an overseas radio station to yeah, give him a boost against the early BBC. In fact, this is even a week before the BBC launch. Some more November happenings in Radioland then. Two days after the Daily Mail concert in Holland, Arthur Burroughs complains to Marconi boss Godfrey Isaacs about a lack of live music on 2ZY Manchester. Now, bear in mind, Arthur Burroughs works with 2LO. He doesn't work with 2ZY. In fact, till recently, they've been rivals. But 2ZY is about to fall under the BBC's jurisdiction. So for the first time, Burroughs has a vested interest in what 2ZY are doing. And Burroughs has applied for the job of BBC Director of Programmes, though he's not got it yet. Soon, though, all this will be his. Or Reith's, who they've not heard of yet. So then, what is John Reith up to at this point? Despite him being the name many associate with the early BBC, the captain doesn't jump on board until the month after the good ship BBC is launched onto the airwaves. So what is Reith doing in early November? Well, it's mostly political. After all, he is a political secretary in the two weeks before a general election. Secretary to MP Sir William Bull. November the 1st, William Bull asked me to go to Birmingham to see Chamberlain. That's Austin Chamberlain, head of the Unionist Party in Parliament, not Neville Chamberlain, his younger half-brother, who's a junior MP on the way up. I liked Chamberlain. He was very civil to me. He thinks it most unfortunate that in these days moderate-minded men should not be united in the face of the Labour menace. After I'd gone, Chamberlain said to Bull... I'm impressed by that big man of yours. Where did you get him? Yes, Reith is making his mark on the great and the good. November 3rd, we went to where Lord George is staying. I was quite thrilled by being introduced. Only William Bull and I were there. And so on, till election day, 
on the 15th. William Bull wanted me to distribute handbills in the street, but that is beyond me. Thick fog. That is all to come. For now, before Wreath arrives, if the BBC is anyone's, it's Burroughs, I suppose. And you remember, right from our first episodes, Burroughs was a visionary who wrote articles about the power of radio before broadcasting even existed. He wanted it to go big, and he wants more big live events. And still today, we see that, don't we? With the push for landmark event television, D-Day commemorations, children in need, that moment when the two kids burst in on their interview with the expert on South Korea. We love big live event broadcasting. And sure enough, November the 11th, 1922, Burroughs has got a big live event to cover. The Lord Mayor's show passes by the 2LO studio, and so Burroughs dangles the microphone out of the studio window to pick up the passing band noise, cheering crowd and marching troops. Also on November the 11th, above Burroughs' level, Godfrey Isaacs is still involved in discussions about news coverage. Him, Sir William Noble, Basil Binion and others on the Broadcasting Committee, they're having those discussions with the press. And on this day, these talks finally conclude. And it's decided the Beeb can read the news, but not gather news or edit news. In which case, of course, the press could just print a bulletin saying the BBC are ninnies and na na ni na na. Technically, Burroughs, set to be the first newsreader, would have to read that out. But good on Reuters, they just sent them news. How very mature. Also on that day, November the 11th, that 2WP transmitter is dismantled, packed onto steam lorries and sent to Birmingham through that thick fog. And so it doesn't arrive, in fact, until late on November the 12th because it gets lost. Then there's a mad scramble to rebuild the transmitter in time for the general election and the potential launch date when London, Manchester and Birmingham will all fall under this new banner, the British Broadcasting Company. I think it's the Broadcasting Committee that really led to the, to the term broadcasting as such. Before then, and in those early months, they tended to talk about wireless or wireless telephony. But from this point onwards, once the Broadcasting Committee is, is organised and is determining the, the future of radio, the newspapers do start calling it broadcasting as opposed to radio or wireless. And it's very interesting that those very early broadcasts Certainly the, uh, the Birmingham broadcast, when they announced the opening of the station, they announced that the, the broadcast is on behalf of the British Broadcasting Committee, mm. not on behalf of the British Broadcasting Company. Mm, it took a while to get the licence, I think, didn't it? It was a couple of months after, actually. We think of the BBC starting in mid-November. I think it's then early 23 they actually get the licence. Yes, so technically, the BBC is unlicensed at this point. Six weeks of being pirate radio, really, until the licence arrives in January 1923. But it's OK. It's all agreed. It can begin. Throughout all this, still no one knows exactly when the BBC will begin its service. 2LO carries on broadcasting, or practising wireless telephony perhaps, not every day, but irregularly. 2ZY keep on with their Monday, Wednesday, Friday broadcasts. And Birmingham Station is mostly on a truck somewhere lost in fog. We know, in hindsight, that the BBC will start on November the 14th. But those people who were there were waiting for a sign. While we're waiting, let's have an airwave memory, an AM. And this time, that's from our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker. My first memory of a radio was actually going to visit a friend. I would have been about five years old. Mother of the friend put us into the front room to listen to Listen With Mother so that her parent, her, her mum, could actually get some peace and quiet. <laughs> I was born in 1953 and 
when I was very young, we had a, I think it was a rediffusion set. It was either radio fusion or radio rentals. It was actually, uh, I think they probably called it wired radio. So it wasn't, nice. didn't receive the transmission. It came through effectively through, through cable. And it was very high up on a shelf on a wall. So I never ever got to touch this radio. And as far as I can remember, the only two stations it, it broadcast was the home service and light program. Although at seven o'clock at night, the light program would automatically switch over to Luxembourg. So they're now, sharing the airwaves at this point. It shared the airwaves, it, it switched across. Now, I don't know whether it, it had the third program. If it did, we never listened to it. And obviously <laughs> I could never, never tune it. I'll tell you about my first radio. And I, I know the exact date that happened. It was the 30th of November. 1963 and it wasn't my birthday but the previous Saturday the 23rd of November was the date that the first Doctor Who episode was transmitted ah. and I didn't see that episode but what I heard about in that those following a few days was how fantastic that episode had been and there was so much clamor from the people who'd missed it that the BBC decided that they would repeat that first episode on the following Saturday, immediately followed by the, the second episode. So I was uh, really enthusiastic now about watching that second programme. So we bought the radio late on that afternoon, and I was so worried we were going to miss Doctor Who. And I remember us getting coming home, and we managed to get there with about 10 minutes to spare. So I was able to watch that first episode. And the, and the second episode of Doctor Who. So that's how I remember the date of buying that first tiny little red pocket radio, pocket transistor radio. Let's travel back to 1922, November the 13th, the eve of the BBC, because that's the date that Sir William Noble, head of the Broadcasting Committee, finally announces that the agreement with the press has been reached, which means that he issues a statement. Pending the formation, he means registration, the formation actually happened a month before, October the 18th, of the BBC, which will be completed in a few days, the Broadcasting Committee has decided to commence a limited nightly programme from the London station. This will consist of two copyright news bulletins and the official weather reports, broadcast at 6pm and 9pm on a wavelength of 360 metres. The first two bulletins will be broadcast tomorrow, Tuesday evening. We are off. A memo lands on the desk of Arthur Burroughs, informing him that as of tomorrow, this new era will begin. Essentially for him, the big difference is that now he'll be on every night. Special messages indicating the progress of the general election will be broadcast as received on Wednesday and Thursday evenings. So no more experimental broadcasting. From tomorrow, November the 14th, 1922, the British Broadcasting Company take control. They're still effectively run by the Broadcasting Committee because they'll oversee it for now until the end of the year or so. But for now, the BBC is go and it's been on nightly ever since then. But this means just 24 hours notice for 2LO, 2ZY and 5IT. And as for what that first BBC broadcast was like, we'll find out next time. So this episode, we focused on a few limitations and pitfalls and the licence failures, the dangers of bias, problems that we still really haven't quite solved. So we're getting these out of the way this episode so that next time it can be a celebration for the launch of the BBC. <laughs> Next episode should land on November the 14th, 2020, the 98th birthday of the Beeb, and we'll have the big reenactment of that very first broadcast. 
Before we go and plot our own historical reenactment, a friend of the show is recreating broadcast history too. We've mentioned the iconic Melba broadcast a couple of times this episode. Well, our friend Tim Wonder, broadcasting historian extraordinaire, he was in the Times newspaper a couple of weeks ago, helping Dame Nelly Melba make the headlines once again in 2020, because Tim is trying to do something quite special. He's trying to recreate Melba's voice. There is, of course, a copy of her recorded voice, as you know, we've played it on here before, but because it would have been distorted by the recording equipment, no one fully knows exactly how she would have sounded. So Tim Wonder's mission is to get a contemporary singer today to record onto a similar device as Melba used, see how it distorts this modern day voice, and then you can reverse the process on Melba's recordings. Et voila, Madame Melba. And in fact, in doing this, Tim Wonder has found a photo of the Melba concert being recorded. And just to remind you, there is no known recording of Melba's May 1920 concert, the first public British broadcast. This major moment when radio really was tested widely for the first time. But Tim's seen a picture in the journal Société Française Radio Electrique SFR, and we've put that picture on Twitter and on Facebook. That's at BB Century. Do have a look. The photo shows two engineers at the SFR lab in Paris recording onto large yet extremely delicate wax discs. There was a recording. We now know what it looks like, but is that recording somewhere? If so, handle with care. It's probably just candle wax by now. But it's nice to think that Melba's voice is out there somewhere. Maybe you have the original Melba recording in your cupboard or under your feet as a footstool. We live in hope. Do join us next time for the very first BBC broadcast recreated for you. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are public domain as far as we know. If you think differently, do ask us to remove your clip and we'll do just that. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for, at last, the launch of the British Broadcasting Company here on the British Broadcasting Century.